This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Football Odyssey. This is your host, Aaron Harris. My guest today is Michael McCambridge, the award-winning author of several sports history books, including America's Game, the epic story of how pro football captured a nation, and Chuck Knoll, his life's work. In this episode, Michael joins me to discuss his biography of Chuck Knoll, a revealing portrait on the life of the understated head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers, who presided over one of the greatest dynasties in sports history. I've posted a link in the description to Michael's website where you can buy his insightful book, and I encourage all football fans to give this a read to learn more about one of the most impactful yet reserved figures in NFL history. With that being said, thank you all for listening. And if you enjoy the interview, feel free to subscribe and share. And now, enjoy the show. And we're rolling. Okay, Michael McCambridge, the author of Chuck Knoll, His Life's Work. Thank you for joining, Michael. How are you? Very good. Good to be with you. Yeah, of course. So Chuck Knoll is, he was the coach of the Steelers for 23 years. He won four Super Bowls and won Coach of the Year in 1989. Uh, But there hasn't been an in-depth biography the same way that other coaches have received with less accolades. So why do you think it took so long to get an in-depth biography on the man? And what inspired you to be the one that would ultimately write the book? Well, I think it took so long because Noel was just naturally a little more understated and a little less um, sort of superficially colorful um, than some of the other most successful, most legendary coaches. He didn't really have a trademark hat like Tom Landry or Bear Bryant. He didn't open a steakhouse after he got done with his career like Don Shula. There wasn't a Saturday Night Live sketch about him like Mike Ditka. he was somebody who was, I think, very comfortable uh, being more in the background, which didn't mean he wasn't a, a fiercely effective leader. But, you know, I've been, to, I've been to the homes of Hall of Fame coaches, and I won't mention a name here, but it, it was another coach, not Chuck Knoll. And in the living room, above the fireplace, there's a couple sort of eternal flames flanking a big oil color painting of the head coach you know that's that's kind of the ego level that that uh, that some head coaches had and Noel was was not really like that so I think that was one of the reasons a, a biography had not been written in my case I if you would have asked me um, 10 years ago for my you know 50 top ideas for a book a biography of Chuck Noel would not have been on the list Um, But I was contacted by the Steelers owner, Dan Rooney, whom I'd interviewed for a couple of my earlier books. And uh, he was working as an ambassador to Ireland at the time. But he invited me out to Pittsburgh to talk with him. And he said, somebody needs to write a book on on Noel. And I, I told him I was flattered that he had asked about me. And I said I would look into it. But I said, Dan, it's it's got to be something more than just he was a good coach. Mm-hmm. And Rooney said, you look into it, you'll see. And indeed, the, there there was a, a story there that that needed telling, and, and I was uh, happy to be the one to tell it. 
Yeah, throughout your book, it's the theme of his persona that I think a lot of people misunderstood, or if not misunderstood, they just didn't know because he wasn't very public. I think a lot of people looked at his stoicism as being subdued or robotic in some sense. But in your earlier parts of your book, you really do a great job of talking about his upbringing with uh, Kate and William Knoll. And I think the philosophy was when they had calamity, they acknowledged it, but then they ignored it after that. And I'm curious, like, do you think that that childhood or that upbringing was unique to Chuck? Or do you think that many men and women of that generation probably had the same experience? Oh, I I think it was a very common experience for people of that age group. Um, Somebody who lived through both the Depression and the Second World War, um, those people were just by nature rough hewn. And it's also, I think it's true that, you know, if you look back at the sort of ideal depictions of American manhood. Um, this was sort of a pre-Oprah time when men did not, you know, spend a lot of time um, getting in touch with their feelings. Um, the, the notion of what you did um, to deal with adversity was you dealt with it and moved along. And th- there wasn't this sense of, am I in touch with my feelings? Have I have I grieved enough about this? Has this been a sufficient enough catharsis for yeah. me to move on? Um, I don't think there were a lot of people who lived through the Depression um, and through World War II and the, the trauma and the loss and the uncertainty who were spending a lot of time worried about whether or not they were self-actualized. And so I think in that sense, Noel was... Noel was a product of his time. I think one place where he was different than a lot of other coaches is from very early on, he had a very scholarly viewpoint um, toward the game of football, how it should be played, how it should be coached. Um, And so there was less of that kind of macho, violent, stick your face in the fan um, mindset that that other coaches had. Um, Noel talked a lot about he was a teacher and that made sense because you know he played for one of the one of the most important football coaches in history Paul Brown who literally turned this vocation into a profession the way Paul Brown looked at it so it was it it was certainly in tune with Chuck Knoll's academic viewpoint let's make this a study a science What's the science of offensive line play? What's the science of how we, how we run a zone defense? What's the science of how a team asserts its will? And, and, and so I think Noel was very much attuned to that level of um, scholarly inquiry when it came to, to football. And it, it was, he was true to himself. And I think that just the one other, I don't mean to turn this into a filibuster, but I think the one other thing that, that Noel accomplished from very early on in his coaching career that some coaches never learn is he didn't try to be somebody else. He was, he was true to himself. He didn't try to be more colorful, more vociferous, um, more temperamental than he actually was. He was a somewhat taciturn, somewhat reserved student of the game. And that came across. Yeah, absolutely. And even from an early age, 
he was someone that had a lot of interest. You know, you talk about how he was pretty well-rounded in literature and science growing up in school. Um, but th- what what was it about football that really just captured his imagination? I mean, was it just something that was the most thought-provoking for him, the most challenging? What What made him really just dedicate his time to the game? I think it was started off being what he was best at. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he liked the the combination of physicality and intellectualism. You know, I remember somebody once writing that um, baseball fans think their sport is complicated because they understand it. Yeah. And football fans know their sport is complicated because they don't understand it. And there was a sense that Chuck was um, was fascinated with the whole chess match of football, all the different permutations, all the different moving parts. And and so I think that was one of the things that that drew him both as a player and then later as a, as a coach. And it was it was something he could surround. It was a it was a pursuit that stood up to scrutiny. And the things that he wound up being interested in later in life, you know, whether it was getting his pilot's license and flying, whether it was how to captain a boat, whether it was how to be a connoisseur of fine wines uh, or a student of high-end stereo systems, those were the sort of things that involved gradations and nuances and subtleties. But if you studied it long enough, you could become... Um, conversant in those things. And so that appealed to him. And I think football was the same way. And, you know, it was, it was also, I talk in the book at, at the end of, of his playing career, coaches knew right away that he could be a coach and he'd never really gotten completely comfortable on the outside. He was never going to be a great insurance salesman. He was not one of those grip and grin people. Um, like some former athletes are great in, you know, they can do cocktail parties, they can do sales, they can do. And, and Chuck was not like that. He wanted a task and, and wanted to accomplish it. And, and he did that very well. Well, and the fascinating thing is too, is that throughout the book, you see, you get a good glimpse of Chuck, but you also find out a lot about the coaches that influenced him. You know, going back whenever he played, um, I think it was Coach Alexander who was his coach in youth football and all the way up to Paul Brown. So I'm curious, like in your research, did you begin to like notice a trend uh, or maybe not trend, but similarities between all these coaches that Chuck had identified with or take or took a liking to? I think like most good coaches, he drew from different strains, you know, Mm -hmm. he, he, after playing for Paul Brown, he coached under Sid Gilman, who was one of the most visionary offensive coaches of the era. And then he was an assistant coach under Don Shula, who was one of the most visionary defensive coaches of the era. And I think it's clear that Chuck took something from each of those people. And yet he was, when he starts coaching the Steelers in 1969, was very pointed about he did not want to be seen as a protege of any of these people. He did not want to be viewed as the next Paul Brown, did not want to be viewed as the next Don Shula. Um, and he sort of took pains to to make that point and always gave those predecessors, all the way back to his college and, and high school career, gave those predecessors their due, but made it clear that he was his own man. And I think he, he melded some of those. He was certainly less um, 
certainly less daring offensively than Gilman was. He was certainly less of a vocal leader than Shula was. Um, he was certainly less of a humorless taskmaster than Paul Brown was. But he drew something from from each of those coaches. Well, yeah, I think like the most notable or maybe not the most notable example, but the first thing that comes to mind was how Paul Brown would always send a guard with the play to the um, quarterback. But he would just prefer for the quarterback to call the plays. You know, he's like, they're a grown man. They should be able to do it. He said that um, he said that sending in the plays emasculates the quarterback. Yeah, probably <laughs> not something that Mike Ditka would say. Right. <laughs> it's just it's just weird to think because whenever I think of Chuck Knoll, I always kind of group him with a Paul Brown coaching tree, even though he technically he's part of Sid Gilman, because uh, yeah. it, it's like yeah. Sid Gilman was obviously a great offensive genius. But I, I can see maybe having an influence on Chuck from the sense that Chuck probably refined a lot of defensive philosophy while he was with the Chargers because of the offense he had to go up against. Right. Well, and it was also that was a great staff because, of course, Al Davis was also on that staff in the early Chargers years. So it was uh, and Jack Faulkner, who wound up being a very good uh, assistant coach and later scout and was coach of the year in the AFL, I think, in 62. So there were there was some real talent on that on that staff in, in for the Chargers in the early 60s. Yeah, I didn't realize like how how deep the the talent was because. Um, I think you also bring up that Joe Gibbs was there as a coach at um, San Diego State, wasn't? Could be, and Don yeah. Cordell as well. And, and you know, there's there's Bill a lot Walsh. of people. Yeah, there's a lot of people who came across there, crossed paths with John Madden. You know, there there, yeah. there, there were a lot of young um, coaching talents around and about in California at that time. And. So whenever Chuck gets to Pittsburgh, obviously, you know, he goes to Baltimore and I think he takes over the secondary and I think he's the co-defensive coordinator with Bill Arnsparger. Mm-hmm. Um, and whenever he gets to Pittsburgh, you know, he methodically builds through the draft and focuses on like the finer points of the game. But something I thought was interesting that I didn't know was he preferred to have assistant coaches with college experience as opposed to professional. What was the logic behind that preference? I think he'd seen too many instances of former players who were hired as assistants who never really got a separation from other players who were not really oriented towards the teaching and the refinement and were just like, you know, you go out and and we're going to practice for a while and then we'll go have drinks later. And he didn't want that. He He wanted other coaches who also prided themselves on being teachers. And, you know, if you talk to the players who played for Noel throughout his career, one of the things they talk about is the attention to detail and the fact that even veterans, like a, a veteran like Andy Russell, who'd been with the Steelers for several years before Noel got there, um, in his first training camp with the Steelers, Noel is coming over and teaching him like minute refinements on linebacker play, of moving his step uh, moving his right foot, you know, like a, a foot over to shade the tight end that he was covering on that side, those sort of things. And and it was, uh, you know, one of the other things the players talked about was Noel wasn't just telling people what to do. He was explaining to people why they should do it. And, and so there was, there was a sense of rationality that you didn't get with a lot of, a lot of coaches. And there was a, 
there was a system and there was a process. Everybody talks about the process these days. There was a process then to, the, to building the Steelers. And, you know, it was a terrible team that he inherited. And as you said, he built it carefully and methodically through the draft. But I think when, when you know, when people are talking about putting Chuck Noll into perspective, I think it's worth remembering that his first three years, three years, his record was like 10 and 32. Now think of how many NFL coaches today would survive a record of 10 and 32 for their first three seasons. You know, it, it's just it, it, one of the things that, that made this story interesting to me was the Steelers, who'd been a joke for so long, recognized, even when the win-loss record didn't immediately show it, recognized they had found something and they had a stabilizing influence and they knew that he was the right guy for the job and they were patient enough to wait for that fourth year, which a lot of NFL teams, as you know, wouldn't do. So that's why we have the carousel. Why, even if like if Mike Tomlin would have retired today and they hired a new coach, you know, the day after or tomorrow, I'm not even sure the Steelers would be willing to stick on for four years. I think maybe by year three, they would have to say, listen, this just isn't working out. I mean, it's it's crazy to think how much has changed. Well, I, I guess it has been quite some time. But, yeah, the, you know, the the mode of operation back then was a lot more deliberate, whereas yeah. now it has to be expedited. Yeah. No question. When, when it comes to um, the relationship between Dan Rudy and Chuck Noll, because I think a lot of the, um, the standard way of thinking is if an owner wants to win, just get out of the way. And to a large extent, that's what they did. But Dan Rooney, it felt to me, had more of a close-knit relationship with Chuck than I think maybe a lot of owners have with their coaches. And I was wondering if you could just explain why that, how that dynamic was between them and what made it so efficient. Well, I think um, certainly at the beginning of Noel's career, um, Dan's father, Art Rooney, was still sort of the owner in question. Um and Dan was kind of the, the head of the daily functioning of the team. And one of the things he had realized through the 60s, as the Steelers kept losing and kept making these new hires, was that they needed to find the right person and then just, just stick with them. Um, and I think one of the things Dan Rooney realized was that there was a method to what Noel was doing. There was a a soundness to his process. And so Dan Rooney would have been the person most responsible for making sure Chuck had everything he needed. And that sometimes meant more money spent on scouting. Um, one of the other interesting and key figures in this period was Dan's brother, Art Rooney Jr., who was the Steelers' head of personnel. And it, it, it was interesting as I spent time talking to people about that period, it was clear that for both Dan and Art Jr., and especially Art Jr., who ran the personnel department, there was this all-consuming desire to prove that he wasn't in the position simply because he was the owner's son. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a there's a really interesting give and take between Chuck Noll, who was making the final draft decisions, 
and Art Rooney Jr., who was spending all year scouting players. And famously, in 1972, they had um, what some people describe as an argument. Mm-hmm. Chuck Noll later described as that was just a disagreement, um, in which Art Rooney sort of had to stand on the table and say, "No, you do not want to take Robert Newhouse, the highly rated running back out of Houston. You want to take this guy Franco Harris from Penn State." And even though it was Noll's decision. And even though Noel was leaning to Newhouse, he had enough presence of mind to realize that if Art Jr. was arguing for it this vociferously and this strongly, that that carried some weight. And so he finally agreed to take Harris. And that was obviously one of the keys to the uh, to the Steeler dynasty. Um, Now, I think getting back to your original question, and I'm sorry I'm hopping around a bit. I think Dan Rooney recognized that Noel needed needed the sort of assistant coaches who were teachers and needed to sort of be left alone. And to the point you made earlier, he was very good at making sure he could shield Noel from as many distractions, as many obligations as possible. And it worked marvelously well. Well, one dis- distraction that I think is, I don't know if he would consider it a distraction, but none of the players would, was um, whenever Roy Blunt Jr. went in to write uh, Three Books Shy of a Load. Yeah. I mean, I, I read that book last year, right, I think as COVID happened. And I, I had the edition that had the articles that came whenever the Steelers started winning the Super Bowls right. years after. But it was, yeah. Yeah. And it was so fun to read because there was a lot of I didn't really know a lot about Ray Mansfield going mm-hmm. into the book, but he's such a predominant figure, a character in the book. And one thing I noticed when I was reading is like Chuck is not even in this. I think there was like you point out the the few pages that he's in. And it's kind of like he's not really even a character. He's just sort of like overarching. Right. Well, it was made. Uh, it was clear that the Steelers agreed to it. They thought it would be good publicity. They were still sort of. You know, they had the mindset of we're often overlooked, the same mindset that the people of Milwaukee have because um, Stephen A. Smith doesn't want to go to Milwaukee to watch the Bucks series. Um, and I think they, they wanted to do it. They recognized Blunt was a terrific writer and Sports Illustrated then was, you know, it was the ESPN of its day. Right. It was it set the agenda for what was being covered in American sports. Um, and so it was clear that Dan Rooney kind of informed Chuck that this guy was going to be here. And Chuck made very clear, he can't be at the meetings. He's not going to be at our coaches' meetings. But okay, if you want him here, he'll be here. So yes, he uh, Blunt um, established good and close connections with a lot of the players and some of the other staff. But he, he would be the first to say that he never really got close to, to know. In fact, he described Noel in the book as opaque, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was um, which was was pretty spot on from from Roy's perspective. But I do think about Three Bricks Shy of a Load is the best book ever written about pro football. So I'm glad really? you read. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoy like those sort of embedded journalists. Like uh, I think I also read around the same time the last season of Weeb Eubank. Right. And I I really like that genre from that era because nowadays 
if you want to find out something, yeah, well, it's a, they're very guarded, but they also will put anything out like on Twitter and Instagram. So you kind of like miss the magic when there wasn't really a wall between the athlete and the fan back then because there was a little more camaraderie and understanding, I guess. Yeah, there's a there, there's certainly I'm I'm working now on a book about sports in the 70s and one of the things that's clear in going back and researching that time is the print media had much greater access to the players than they do now. They also had in a lot of cases better access to the players than the television media did. I mean, when the New York Knicks won game 7 of the NBA Finals in 1970, um, Bob Ryan of the Boston Globe and a bunch of the other writers were ushered back to the locker room, and they were in the Knicks locker room before the Knicks came off the court. And so Ryan has in his lead of the game story Walt Frazier after this great game, you know, running into the to the locker room after they've just won the world title and saying, "I need a beer." <laughs> Meanwhile, Howard Cosell of ABC is over off in like the New York Rangers locker room. And he's got to call guys over one at a time to come and be interviewed on national television because the print guys had much greater access. So that obviously was, um, that started to change shortly thereafter. And, and now, you know, it's much more geared towards the TV people. Yeah. We we definitely live in a visual environment nowadays more than ever. Definitely. And when it comes to the dynasty as a whole, so whenever we talk about the greatest dynasty, and it's always hard to compare eras, but people still like to indulge, it's either the 70s Steelers or the Patriots of, you know, the 21st century, because they've had basically two separate (laughs) dynasties within the the 2000s. Um, What do you think it is about this dynasty that Chuck put together that still stands out after all these years that people want to say – is arguably the greatest in pro football history. I think what's interesting is that the Steelers of the mid-70s were one of the great defensive teams of all time, and the Steelers of the late 70s were an offensive juggernaut. And so you've got – they win the title in the 74 and 75 seasons – and again, 78, 79 seasons, and those two teams have such diverse personalities. You know, it was the steel curtain in the mid-70s and Joe Green just dominating. By the late 70s, it's Bradshaw flinging bombs to Stallworth and Swan, um, taking advantage of liberalization of passing rules that were put in place partly because the Steelers' defense was so damn good in the mid-70s. So I think that, um, you know, they talk about finding different ways to win that Steelers dynasty in the 70s certainly did that. Yeah, it almost seems that the greatest defensive unit they had in 76 when they didn't go to the Super Bowl was was probably the strongest. I mean, five shutouts. Yeah. And then they were so beat up. I mean, it was like you and I at running back by the time of play. It was it was. Yeah, it was really difficult. Yeah, especially when you're going to your rival, your rival's home field. Yeah, there's almost no chance. Exactly. And what's interesting too is because I was watching Super Bowl nine a couple weekends ago, and obviously, yeah, that's a defensive game through and through. Uh, but then, like when you watch, you know, like Super Bowl thirteen and fourteen, you you almost feel like you're watching two different teams. Right. And 
whenever I read your book, there seemed to me something about Super Bowl 13 that Chuck really enjoyed about winning. You know, you, you mentioned how he's always involved in the, he, he enjoys the process more than the result or the destination. But after they won that Super Bowl, they were in the locker room, you know, he was smiling. He was very upfront with the cameras and the reporters. Did you get a sense of why that Super Bowl seemingly meant something more than any of the other ones? Well, I think there was a real stylistic contrast between the Cowboys and the Steelers. And there was a stylistic contrast between Tom Landry and Noel. And you don't want to overplay it. You don't want to, you know, turn it into a movie trailer. This time it's personal. Um, But I think that, um, I think that it was clear that the notion that the Cowboys were somehow, quote, America's team, um, rankled a lot of the people in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. because the Cowboys had won two Super Bowls um, and the Steelers had also won two Super Bowls going into that 78, um, that Super Bowl after the 78 season, Super Bowl 13. So it was kind of this, you know, these, which one of these teams is going to be a dynasty? And the Steelers won the next two Super Bowls and, now there's no question who the team of the 70s was. And I think that had something to do with the satisfaction. I think um, Noel got a little tired of, of hearing how great the, the Cowboys computerized scouting system was and, and you know how wonderful Staubach was and how great the flex defense was. And so I think he took some satisfaction in, in um, getting the upper hand for the second time in four years on Tom Landry and the Cowboys. Yeah, it seemed that Chuck had like something like he always felt like a sort of challenge going up against guys who would consider like innovators because later on, whenever they played the 49ers in 81, I don't remember what the quote was, but he he had some choice words to say about um, Bill, Walsh. Uh, Bill Walsh. Yeah. So there always seemed to be sort of like this clash between the fundamentally sound but simple coach going up against the guys who are just trying to trick you in every which way. Well, and then also you you take a look at the contrast in personalities. Um, Sam White in Cincinnati later on mm-hmm. running the no huddle offense and and um, certainly Jerry Glanville and some of the gimmicky stuff he did. Um, Chuck Noll was not going to be leaving tickets for Elvis. You know, that was yeah. what he was about. And also, I think in the case later on of the Oilers in the late 80s, um, Chuck truly felt as though the Oilers were a dirty team and felt as though that was um, – you know, that was, that really was personal. Those two definitely did not like each other. Yeah. There, there's that sign, uh, soundbite from NFL films where you say, just <laughs> wait, till you, wait till you come to Pittsburgh. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think if I remember this correctly, whenever NFL network did like that one hour, uh, special, a football life of Chuck Knoll, um, I think in the beginning you said that you had reached out to Bradshaw for an interview for the book and he declined. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's interesting. Terry Bradshaw is undoubtedly a, a great quarterback. But if you took a look at all the things he'd said about Noel in his own books, in interviews, it's clear that there's a tremendous amount of psychological turmoil going on in right. Terry Bradshaw's mind about Noel. Um, I think I mentioned in the acknowledgments that uh, – when I got Bradshaw's assistant on the phone, she said, there's two things Terry doesn't like to talk about. One of them I'm not going to say, and the other one is Chuck Noll. Um, 
so he he chose not to uh, he chose not to be interviewed. So I wound up, you know, having to talk to others and having to use what he'd said in his own books. And on you know on one hand he he sounds very petulant and says that Noel never understood him and Noel was too tough on him. Um, and on the other hand, he says he never would have accomplished what he did without Noel there. And I think, you know, if you look at what Dan Rooney says, if you look what Joe Green says, if you look what um, Jack Ham say, they all said that rather than being tough on Bradshaw, Noel was very good at holding Bradshaw accountable, but he also protected and defended Bradshaw during that period in the mid-70s when all the talk about Bradshaw being a, quote, dumb quarterback um, mm-hmm. was floating around. And he, you know, he stayed with Bradshaw calling the plays much longer than a lot of other coaches in that era would have. Yeah, I read Bradshaw's book, I think, 10 years ago when I was in high school. And I don't remember too much of it, but I always got the sense like there was like some intimidation factor. And yeah. not that not that Noel was intimidating him, but that Bradshaw, you know, coming from Louisiana and always having coaches that would, you know, put their arm around him and encourage him, give him that rah-rah speech. He would just didn't know how to comprehend, or mean by comprehend, but relate or understand with Noel's approach to coaching. He was built to not understand. And he was also, I think at the beginning of his career, he was emotionally fragile. You know, he's talked and some of his teammates have talked about you know, after a bad game, he might just sit in his pickup truck in the parking lot and, and weep. Um, and so Chuck helped him through that. You know, I'm sure a lot of quarterbacks resent to some degree their head coaches. I'm sure that, you know, Joe Montana and Bill Walsh didn't always see eye to eye. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that, um, you know, clearly Brady and Belichick didn't always see eye to eye. But, right. um, Bradshaw did win four Super Bowls um, with Chuck Noll. So I think the people who are closest to um, the Steelers feel as though Bradshaw might have a little bit more gratitude than he sometimes shows. Okay. But Bradshaw's Bradshaw, you know? Yeah, it's, it's hard to tell sometimes. Yeah. But now, as Pittsburgh moves into the 80s, obviously in the early 80s, they still had some success. But then when 84 hits all the way to 88, they don't make it back to the playoffs. Do you think this was sort of a period in which Chuck Knoll's way was becoming outdated in that era of the NFL? Or do you think in some ways he kind of moved away from the principles and the foundations that made the Steelers successful in the 70s? What's the most important thing to have a successful football team? Um, a quarterback. The quarterback. Quarter- yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, Bradshaw's arm fell off, and they spent a lot of time in the '80s trying to find the right guy and not succeeding much. Yeah. And you know, significantly in the '83 draft, um, they didn't yet know how bad Bradshaw's arm was. Um, if you talk to a lot of people in the Steelers, a lot of people in Pittsburgh still love to play the mind game of what if we drafted Dan Marino. Mm-hmm. Instead of taking Gabe Rivera in that draft, you know, and, and obviously hindsight is twenty twenty. But I think one of the main problems is those great Steelers defenses of the early seventies. Those guys were all getting older and retiring, and then you were losing Bradshaw. Um, Franco Harris was getting older. You know that team was built 
in the first part of the 70s, the end of the 60s and the first part of the 70s, when Pittsburgh was drafting first, fifth, eighth, ninth. Mm -hmm. But once they get good, they're drafting 26th, 24th, 28th, you know, and it's much harder to build a team. Also, one of the advantages the Steelers had in the early part of the 70s was they, along with a handful of other teams, I think the Kansas City Chiefs and the Oakland Raiders sort of led the way um, with not not just having integrated teams, but getting a lot of terrific players from historically black colleges and universities in the South. And the Chiefs Super Bowl team of Super Bowl Four was built um, with a lot of those players, as was the Steelers dynasty. But, you know, everybody imitates success. And by the end of the 70s, not only were a lot of those players who had gone to historically black colleges and universities now going to major colleges in the South, but also other teams were scouting those same places. And so it was harder to sort of get the edge that the Steelers were still getting in the early part of the 70s. So I think that contributed to it as well. Now, did the game pass Noel by? I think he was probably late um, employing a shotgun formation on offense at a time when a lot of teams were doing that. Um, but he was still a damn good football coach as, as 1989 made clear. Yeah. That's a season that just appeared to, I, I guess in the moment came out of nowhere, but whenever you see a success story like that, that happens later on in the coach's career. And especially when the fans at that point are probably thinking he's you know pretty much done at this point, that has to kind of make people wonder, okay, does he still have it in him? Right. Because I've gone back and watched some of those games, like the the Miami game when it's like pouring rain in the mud, and you just see this team has a certain resilience and sort of the foundations for what Bill Cowher's team would go on to be in the nineties. Right. And so it's just and, it's it's amazing to see. Yeah, and and also that year, you know, the narrative going into that year was has the game passed Chuck by? And then they lose the first two games by something like whatever it was, eighty nine to ten or something. Mm-hmm to two of their fiercest division rivals, you can just imagine how people were coming out of the woodwork. But again, Dan Rooney was patient and Chuck Knoll was patient. And I I write in the book about Knoll talking to the team, you know, when they're 0-2 and he's not rattled, he's not berating them. But he says, you know, there's there's nobody going to be riding in from the east. This team, this team gets better from what's in the room now. And we have what's in the room to be successful. And slowly and methodically, you built that team up and they get to the playoffs and then they surprise and knock off the Houston Oilers. And, and you know, that, that team, um, they played a great game against the Broncos in the playoffs, a, a game that they could have won. Um, but there was no question that Noel got the absolute most that you could get out of that team. It was, I think, in many people's minds, one of his best coaching jobs. Yeah, and that that's the year that he won Coach of the Year, right? I believe so, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that Broncos game, it felt like they should have – I mean, what was it, like a penalty that put him in, in a long yard situation at the end? Dropped pass, penalty, a lot of things that um, went against them. But they, they gave the Broncos all they wanted as well. Yeah, well, I like whenever um, – afterwards, whenever he went to Merrill Hodge and asked, yeah. you know, if would, would you have been able to play next week? And he's just all beat up and battered, and he said, yeah, coach. Yeah. Yeah. Now, he retires in 90 after the 91 season. And whenever I read sort of like how some of the players 
reflect back on the impact they had on him. It, it kind of seemed to me like they definitely appreciated him as a coach, but they didn't really understand how much they had influenced him until after playing. Did you kind of get that same sense when you were interviewing a lot of these guys? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it's one of those things. And you hear this sometimes with players talking about a coach like John Wood, um, where they were intimidated by him. He was formidable. They, they might not have said during their playing career that they, quote, liked him. But they also recognized after the fact, after their career, how much he influenced their worldview, how much he influenced the way they reacted day after day, week after week. And that mindset, never get too high, never get too low, keep your eyes on the prize, keep focused on the task. A lot of players talked about that, that, that mindset, that approach. They were able to take that from football into their life after football. And so, you know, John Stallworth talked about um, Noel was like a father to me. Noel tremendously shaped my worldview. Stallworth went on to a very successful business career after his playing career. And he said he realized he probably never had a conversation longer than five minutes with Chuck Noll, but there was still that almost by osmosis passed down that sense of, of influence, that sense of um, shaping him. And so I, I, I definitely think that was there. Yeah. It seems Stallworth and Joe Green, especially there was sort of like this unspoken bond that was maybe a little closer than the other players. And I, I was, kind of, I was kind of surprised to hear too, that there was maybe not tension, but some hard headedness between him and Jack Lambert. Was it, was that a surprise for you? To- well, you know, Lambert is another one who's his, sort of his own person. Yeah. And I think um, one of the things that, that strikes me at the end of the day, um, Chuck Noll was clearly in charge, but he found a way to get all these diverse, strong personalities. Joe Green, Jack Lambert, Mel Blunt, Donnie Shell, Elsie Greenwood. Jack Ham, all these different guys to coexist peacefully. You know, the wrong coach, that could have been a very combustible situation because there were a lot of people who, who didn't naturally have a lot in common. And I think it's a credit to Noel that so many of those players, without losing their individuality, because John Frenchie Fuqua was still um, described himself as the count and he was still wearing capes and and stack heels and and you know everybody was able to express themselves but they all did it within the context of the team which is you know that that's a timeless skill um yeah. that's as valuable in 2021 as it was in 1971 right and Another person throughout the book that you know, I just want to kind of ask about your experience interviewing was Marianne's wife, because, I mean, she was someone who has like such a presence and such a foundation in his life. And towards the end of his life, when he was talking about or when you talked about him having Alzheimer's and he told her that he would never forget who she was. You know, I'm not married. I don't have kids, but you can't help but feel warm inside when you hear someone that has that much love. What was it like to be able to sit with her and really go behind the public figure that he was and kind of see who we, who he was with her and his family. Well, you know, I, when I started working on the book, um, Chuck was still living 
and it was clear that he was um, somewhat diminished, um, that the Alzheimer's was taking its toll. Um, but the family was kind enough to sort of let me come inside, have some dinners with them and see the interaction. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've ever had a loved one who was suffering from Alzheimer's, it is in many ways the most painful thing because they're still there, but they're not, you know, they're not the person that, that, um, that you fell in love with or the person you grew up with. And, you know, there's this, there's this sense of they're always trying to catch up. They're always sort of stuck in the moment. Um, but I, I think the thing that struck me, the thing that made me realize that Chuck's story was ultimately a love story was to go back and understand his relationship with Marianne within the context of his life, what they meant to each other, the way they sort of were on the same wavelength. And the way, even as he was dealing with um, physical maladies and, and mental challenges, she stuck by his side. And it was a sense of we are life partners and we are going to go through all of these things together. And even as he recognized that he was starting to lose his memory, he also recognized that she was his anchor to the real world. She was, you know, he had been her protector and now she was his protector and they continued to be partners. And, you know, it was still, even in the, in the last years of his life, um, she would be making dinner and he would be cutting tomatoes to help with the salad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, some of that same interplay that people were so touched by was, was still going on, even in his diminished state in the last years of his life. So, yeah, Marianne was great. And um, without her cooperation, um, I couldn't have written nearly the book that I was able to write. Because they, they sort of, uh, the private people that um, sort of let me in and see what was going on. And, and by the time you finished the book, how did your perception of Chuck change, if you had any going into it? Um, I think at the end of the book, I recognized him in a way that I had not before, even as being a student of football. I recognized him as a truly great coach. And somebody who was much more interesting than he let on. And um, maybe the last renaissance man to be a head coach in the National Football League. Because, you know, for for decades now, the National Football League has been about, you know, John Gruden brags about waking up at 317 in the morning. I can remember asking asking Brian Billick once, you know, what, what time in the morning do you get up? And Billick said, I get up an hour before whenever Gruden lies about he gets up. And, you know, there's that that sense of competition, that sense of, you know, I'm going to work a 22-hour work day. I think Chuck had a sense of perspective and recognized. And, and a lot of Chuck's protégés, Tony Dungy would be one who recognized, you know, the the 13th or 14th hour of work you do in a particular day you're starting to deal with diminishing returns and probably you need to go home and recharge your batteries. And I, I think Chuck was very much that way. So I, it's certainly one of the most interesting subjects I've ever, I've ever written about. And I was, I was grateful for the chance to tell that story. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the way you talk about how he kind of added an identity to or not added, but reshaped an identity for Pittsburgh when they really were kind of dad on themselves during obviously because the Steelers had always been horrible, but you know, the steel industry was in decline by the time he got there. And in many ways, I don't know the economic history of Pittsburgh, but the success of the team has had to have had a big impact on the way the city generates revenue now. Definitely. And I think that, you know, during that time when the Steelers were ascendant, um, to your point, the steel industry was falling apart and the assumptions that people had built their lives on um, were starting to disappear. And I think what happened during that time was the fans of the Steelers saw something of themselves, saw some of that resilience, that toughness in the team they were cheering for. And there was just this fascinating transference, which is why I think Steeler Nation, as it exists today, is still continues to be so strong because there was a bond there. Um, you know, you, you, you see it in the most passionate fan bases. You see it in some of, you know, the connection with people in Liverpool and the Liverpool Football Club. It's some of that same thing is there. And I, I think that um, they recognized that toughness in the team. They saw themselves in that. And Noel built that team. And it, it, to your point, that that personality still exists today. Yeah, I've been to Pittsburgh a few times to go to games and from I mean, obviously throughout the week, it's, you know, they still wear the uniform, but from, you know, Friday after work all the way through Monday morning, everybody is just dressed in a sea of black and gold. It's really amazing. It's almost like the impact he had. Go ahead. Uh, just one more thing. Um, go to any sports bar anywhere in the country, you know, and there's going to be a group of Steelers fans there. There may not be any Chargers fans there. There may, may not be any, there may not even be any Buccaneers fans in a lot of those places. But you go to any big sports bar in America, there's going to be a group of Steelers fans. Well, I live in I live in Atlanta, and I moved here three years ago, and I found a Steelers bar by accident. Right, and, and it's amazing. You know, it was the first game of the season. I walked in, and I felt like I was back in Pittsburgh. Right, I mean, it right. really was incredible. Well, do you want to tell people where they can buy the book? Uh, they can buy the book at all the places you know that you buy books. It's available on Amazon.com. It's also available um, at your local independent bookseller. And um, if you want a signed copy, those are available on my website at michaelmccambridge.com. Michael, I really am glad that you took the time. Chuck is a guy that has contributed a lot to the NFL. And I'm glad someone wrote a book about him because for a guy who wins four Super Bowls, it's not thought to be someone who could be underrated. But if you could apply it, it would apply to Chuck. So I'm glad you really gave me a or gave us a good account of the man's life whom not many of us really knew. So I appreciate you taking the time. Well, thanks much. I appreciate you reading and, and all the good questions. All right. You have a good one. Okay. All right. Thanks much. Take care.